The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of God for the people of God. Well, happy Sunday, everybody. Good to see uh, all of you. Uh, one of my favorite things, uh, really, to do just in period, just in general, is uh, be by myself. And <laughs> not, not that I don't like being with you all on Sunday, but I love being by myself and just reading, reading good theology, reading books and biblical studies. It's something I try to do as often as I can. I really just enjoy, you know, that time. And it's something, again, I just try to for me, I just love doing. And sometimes people will say to me, and people who are really kind and sincere, and I love them, will say something like, that really isn't practical, is it? Or like, why do you, like, they, like, they ask, like, why do you like doing that? And, and, I, and I get where they're coming from because I know there's theology books and resources that, sure, they get into the weeds too much, and it's whatever. I get that. But my contention and my, my thing is that theology, rightly understood, rightly applied, rightly studied is the most practical thing you could ever do with your time and with your life. Like having robust theology is super meaningful for you. And I would say for each of us in this room, you actually need more theology in your life, not less. And one of my like, you know, secret agendas, if you will, not so secret, is actually to help convince you of that, not just today, but like, you know, every time we're together, is that more theology rightly understood, rightly applied, is some of the best thing you, one of the best things you can do with your life and with your, with your time. This doesn't mean you need to get a PhD or no Greek or Hebrew or anything like that, but what this does mean is that every single one of us in this room should have a desire and a passion to deeply understand the truths of Scripture, the storyline of the Bible, in such a way that that is what animates and shapes your everyday life. And so as we come to Philippians chapter 2, we come to probably one of the most dense theological passages in all of scripture. It's probably one of the top two or three passages that is full of rich, robust theology that really explains and identifies and helps really answer the question, who is Jesus? And what is Jesus all about? And so for this morning, my hope is to show us and look at this text to help us understand better, let me use a fancy theological word for a moment, Christology. Christology is just a simple word for the study of Jesus or the study of Christ. 
And that we might come away understanding that we don't just have heady doctrine over here, but rather all theology is lived theology, or at least is meant to be. And so as we look at Philippians 2, that's Paul's aim here. Paul, as a pastor, as a preacher, as a leader, is giving the gift of this paragraph, what we call Philippians 2, to the church in Philippi, not just to give them abstract doctrine, some propositional truths, but to shepherd and care for and pastor and shape the lives of the church in Philippi. That what we're about to learn and to study and to dive into is meant to be, yes, doctrine for our understanding, doctrine to help us understand more deeply the truths about who Christ is, Christology, but that is actually also meant to be lived out in, in forming and shaping how we act and, and live in this world. So the aim for today is to allow just the text to be the text. I don't necessarily have three points. I don't have an alliteration for this morning. Maybe we'll do that next time. But for today, what I want to do is just walk through the text line by line, and sometimes even word by word, and get down into the weeds a little bit and allow the theology of this passage to shape our vision and our understanding of who Jesus is. So it's going to feel a little bit like we're, we're going to stretch our minds for the next few minutes. We'll come up for air towards the end, and hopefully you'll see how this intersects and applies and is meaningful for not just your knowledge, but for your everyday life. So with that in mind, Look down, with your, look down with me at your Bibles at verse 5, where Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, amongst this community, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Remember, kind of picking off from last week, Paul had ended that section we looked at last week with this, this understanding or this idea of have this mindset, this way of thinking, feeling, acting, all packed into that word mind, this mindset, which is yours. It's a gift given to you in Christ Jesus. Because, Christian, you are in Christ, the logic is you're in Christ, therefore, you have this mindset, this way of thinking, feeling, acting as a community. So live into that. And the question then becomes, so what is this mindset? What is this way of thinking, feeling, acting that is ours in Christ Jesus? Well, Paul's going to explain that, unpack that for us here in the next few verses. And so we come to verse 6, which Verses 6 through 11, if you read a stack of books on Philippians 2, what many people will argue for and, and point out is that this little paragraph that we're about to dive into was more than likely, many people think, an original hymn or even a creed that the early church would have recited or even sung in their own worship gatherings. So just like how a moment ago we recited Philippians 2 as our profession of faith this morning, more than likely... The early church, even before Paul wrote this letter about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, would have themselves used something like this, or these very words even, in their profession of faith, in their own worship gathering. So what we're reading is really, if to think about it like this, is a summary, a core summary of the gospel. A core summary of the, the deep truths of what we as Christians have believed for over 2,000 years. And so let's look at this kind of again, phrase by phrase, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So right off the bat, Paul says, who, though, or although, he was in the form of God, meaning that even though Christ 
had all of the resources, all of the glory, all of the status, despite the fact that he could have used that for his own advantage, Paul's saying, no, that's not what the Son of God did. And also, some of your translations might have, instead of the word although in there, might have the word because, which kind of hits at this kind of dual nuance of, of that opening line. Because he was in the form of God, meaning because he is God, and this is what God is like, self-giving love, Jesus did these things. Because this is in the very nature of who our God is, to, to give and to self-sacrifice, the Son of God came and took on flesh. So although he was, look at that phrase again, maybe underline this one, in the form of God. Now this is one of those kind of phrases or one of those ideas that sometimes people might come and look at Philippians 2 and say, you know what? Here's an example right here, Christian, in your Bible where it says Jesus actually wasn't completely God. He was just, quote, in the form of God. Not fully divine, not full deity. He's just in the form of God. Now, what would we say to that? How would you respond to a claim that says perhaps Jesus is maybe he's semi-divine or not really fully divine. He's just in the, quote, form of God. Now, there's at least a couple things we could say. First, we want to understand what does Paul actually mean by that phrase? And in particular, that word form. See, in Paul's day, the idea of something or someone being in the form of something meant that that something or someone was in its very essence, that's who that thing was. So for Paul to use the language of being in the form of God is Paul's way of saying at the deepest core of who the Son of God is, the Son of God is God. And in addition, just even look at the passage. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not what? Count equality with God. So whatever form of God means, it means, according to Paul in Philippians 2, that the Son of God is equal with God, not less than God. But I love what Paul also says, that he did not, Jesus did not count equality with God. Now, think about what we looked at a little bit last week. Remember when Paul told the Philippian church, in humility, count or consider others? It's the same idea, same phrase. See, what Paul is getting at is that the reason Christians are to consider, be intentional, count each other's, not only your own interests, but the interests of others more important than yourselves. Why? Because this is exactly what Paul is saying Jesus has done for you and for me. That Jesus has not counted his own interests more important than himself, but rather has considered the interests of you and for me, the people that he has come to save. Do not count, or Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. This idea being, think of the echo, perhaps, of the Adam and Eve story in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve see the fruit, it looks good in their own eyes, and they grasp, or they take it for themselves. And Paul is saying here, Jesus did not do that, did not take or grasp, or the NRSV has the, the translation of, to use for his own advantage. Jesus did not exploit his status, his identity, his power for himself. He did not use that for his own advantage. Rather, gave freely, laid his life down, entered into our brokenness, entered into our despair, that he might come and save and redeem. And this is why, throughout church history, Christians have 
gathered together and have identified and declared and affirmed that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Not 99% man with the spark of the divine and not the other way around, not some 50-50 sort of thing. No, but fully God, fully man. To the point where the Nicene Creed, something we recite very often here at Cormdale, says about Jesus that he's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, and having the same being as the Father. I love what N.T. Wright says about this passage, about Jesus in particular. He says the decision to become human and go all the way down the long road of obedience, obedience to the divine plan of salvation, yes, all the way to the cross, this decision was not a decision to stop being divine. That's important. It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. That this is who our God is. The one who does not use his privilege and status for his own advantage, but rather gives freely of himself for the sake of others. But notice verse 7. Paul writes, But he, Jesus, emptied himself. Again, there's an echo back to our passage last week when we talked about empty glory or vain glory where we as human beings, because we all sin and fall short of the glory, there's empty glory there. We operate from this place of wanting to have glory for ourselves rather, but Jesus, on the other hand, has all the glory in the world, but emptied himself, did not operate from a place of using his status, but by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now here again in verse seven, some people might come to verse seven, look at, okay, look at, Here's a clear point in your Bible, Christian, where it says Jesus, the Son of God, ceased being divine upon his incarnation. It says right here, right? He emptied himself. Doesn't that just simply mean very clearly Jesus, the Son of God, is not divine in his, in his humanity? I mean, doesn't it say that right there? He emptied himself. Now, again, ask yourself that question. How would you respond to that? What might you say in that moment of Philippians 2 right there in your Bible, Jesus emptied himself? What does that phrase mean? Well, again, being good Bible readers means that we just don't kind of cherry pick and isolate words and just import meaning into them. We have to allow the, you know, words mean what they mean in context of how they're being used. It's very just, you don't even read the Bible for that. That's just how we read literature. The phrase, Jesus emptied himself, emptied himself by how? By taking on the form of a servant, the form of a slave. In a sense, we might say it like this. Jesus emptied himself with addition. Taking on the form of, of a human. And in particular, Paul uses the word servant. It's the same word for slave all throughout the New Testament. The lowest of the low in Paul's society. The very bottom of the social ladder. Think about that. All glory and power and status in the universe to the very bottom of society. This is the theology that Paul is wanting to impart to the church in Philippi and by extension to the inspiration of the Spirit to us today. This understanding, this is who our God is and this is what God is like. Let's pause here for a moment though. Let's come up for some air. That's a lot there. Let me throw this picture up on the screen of Superman. 
You're like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, hold on. Throughout church history, there's been a lot of, I'd say it like this, gently, misunderstanding, and maybe the stronger, more accurate word, heresy, into how this passage and passages like it inform our doctrine or our Christology of who Jesus is. There's all these sort of things, like is Jesus 50-50? Is he like really God, but not really man, or really man and not really God? And so a helpful way to kind of think through some of these misunderstandings or heresies is from one of my professors who wrote a book, Superheroes Can't Save You, where he goes through different superheroes to help illustrate or articulate different heresies throughout church history. So the, one of them is the Superman heresy, which if you think about Superman, he's not really human, right? He just appears to be human. And this speaks to the ancient church heresy that's even alive in many parts today of what we call docetism, coming from a word that means something like to seem or to just appear like. That Jesus just appeared to be human, but he wasn't really human. Or another one is the Thor heresy, where Thor, he's really important, he's powerful, he's kind of one of the gods, but he's not the ultimate god. He's like subordinate to the main powerful god. And this would be the, the, uh, the ancient heresy of Arianism, which is alive in many modern sort of cults and sects in our day. Or the Ant-Man heresy, <laughs> right? Where Jesus is just like one mode of what God is like. Sometimes Jesus, the God operates as the Son. Sometimes, you know, God operates as the Holy Spirit. And sometimes God operates as the Father. Just kind of like Ant-Man's like, you know, Giant Man or Yellow Jacket or whatever the story, however that goes. Confession. I've actually not seen any of these movies. <laughs> because maybe you will either hate me or appreciate me more. I just think they're not great movies. It's just how much CGI can we fit into one movie seems to be the storyline here. But the one movie that I have seen is The Batman Heresy, which I think is the, the, ba- the only good ones out of all this, <laughs> right? And this one is really alive and well in our day, where Batman, he's just a really amazing human being, Right? He's not really anything special. He doesn't really have any powers outside of just being kind of amazing. And a lot of people today think of Jesus as he's a great human being. He's a great teacher, great miracle worker, great prophet, but not really divine. And so that's the Batman heresy. And that's the best one. He dresses the best too. (laughs) And so, (laughs) because he's black. (laughs) And so think about it like this. We're going to go back deep now. Okay, that was, that was your little intellectual break. Come back, come back deep here. Think about what we're trying to get at is, is simply this idea. That a, a robust and right understanding of who Christ is, really if we want to kind of anchor it in Philippians 2, underline the phrase form of God, form of a slave, or form of a servant. Morphe theu, morphe dulu. Gets at this idea, fully God and fully man. And if your brain hurts by, by thinking about that too much, I think you're in the right spot. And that's, that's the understanding that Paul is presenting here of who Jesus is. And because of this, look at this, verse 8, keep, Paul keeps going on, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I mentioned at the beginning how verses 6 through 11 are more than likely, many people think, like a hymn or a creed. Because there's some sort of like rhythm or kind of cadence to how these verses are are read in Paul's language here. But that last little clause at the end of verse 8, even death on a cross, 
breaks the pattern of the rhythmic structure, and really, if you're looking at this in Paul's language, just bursts off the page. It stands out. Even death on a cross. I mean, there's some category for like, you know, someone being self-sacrificial and laying down their rights, but the fact that the God of the universe, or even a God in particular, would humble themselves to the point of even death on a cross is completely unheard of in Paul's day. To the point where even Roman historians in Paul's own day or shortly thereafter would say this, Cicero, how shall I describe crucifixion? No adequate word can be found to, found to represent so execrable an enormity. Or he goes on and says, crucifixion is, quote, the most cruel and abominable punishment, form of punishment. More than likely, Paul's kind of the language used throughout Paul's society would be Latin. And in Latin, the word cross is crux, which was an expletive in that day. So when you're reading even death on a bleep, like it's that offensive. It's that shameful of an idea. And so for first century Christians, for Christians even today, we need to wrestle with this idea. This is the depth of who God is and the love that he's demonstrated for you and for me. See, in a culture, in a Roman culture that prizes honor, social mobility, it's a very hierarchical sort of social status type culture. In this particular moment, Paul is saying what true greatness, what true honor, where that is actually found is not just high into the right and achieving more for yourself, but actually laying down your rights, laying down your privilege, laying down your status. To the point where Paul is, in very, very intentional ways, friends, pushing against the Philippians' understanding of honor, the Philippians' understanding of greatness, and by extension, our understanding of greatness. In a culture in our day that prizes and celebrates self-promotion, greatness in the sense of how can I just increase my own status? How is Philippians 2 challenging our culture's definition of greatness? How is this passage challenging your understanding of greatness? And friends, where are you tempted perhaps to maybe give into our culture's understanding of greatness and honor and status? I think we really need to wrestle with Philippians 2 and really wrestle with if this is not just abstract theology, but actually is meant to intersect with how you live tomorrow, how is this truth about who God is inform how we understand and celebrate what is actual greatness? What is actual honor? Paul goes on there. Keeps, I love this. Verse 9. Therefore, because of all this, because of what Paul has just said, what, what Jesus has done, therefore God has highly exalted. The only time this phrase is used in the New Testament literally super exalted, exalted him and bestowed or given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here, Paul is clearly redefining greatness, redefining honor. This is what honor looks like. This is what greatness looks like. Not a violent warrior king, 
Not a victor on a battlefield with blood on his sword, but a crucified Messiah with blood in his hands. This is what greatness looks like. And Paul wants the church in Philippi to understand this. That it's not through self-promotion, it's not through personal achievement, but rather through humility and service that God's mission goes forward. That our lives are to be lived. Now, this isn't the only cool thing Paul's doing here in this passage. You know, let me let you in on something. The words, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, those words are not original to Paul. Paul didn't come up with that idea himself. The prophet Isaiah did. Isaiah 45, we'll put it up on the screen. If you want to turn there, you can. But Isaiah 45, take a look at this. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Here it is. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Do you see what Paul's doing there? Or do you see what Paul has done with Philippians 2? He's taken Isaiah 45, which is very clearly speaking about allegiance and and the, the, the idea that only Yahweh is the one true God of Israel and the one true God of the world, taking that idea and applying that to Jesus. That Jesus alone is God. That Jesus himself is who Isaiah 45 is talking about. That to him, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Friends, this is actually one of my... So let me back up. When people ask, okay, so how can we look at Scripture and say, how do we know that Scripture teaches clearly that Jesus is God or that Jesus is divine? It's a great question. It's a great way to, a great question to wrestle with, to think about how would you answer that question. And a lot of people would like to go to passages like, you know, John 20, where Thomas confesses to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Great. That's true. That's awesome. Or maybe like Colossians 1 or Colossians 2. In, in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And that's great. That's, that's, go to those passages. But one of my favorite ways of talking about how we know the scriptures teach that Jesus is God is looking at these passages where this is all over your New Testament, where a New Testament writer will quote or allude to an Old Testament passage that's speaking about Yahweh, the God of Israel, and applying that to Jesus. As one writer says, it's Jesus doing all this Yahweh stuff, right? And that's one of the main ways that the New Testament writers are very clear that Jesus is God. That him alone is worthy of worship. Because even in that Isaiah 45 passage, for I am God and there is no other. But how can it be that the homeless man from Nazareth an itinerant rabbi, shares and is fully divine. In the one sense, it's a beautiful mystery, but in another sense, it's clear in Scripture. Fully God, fully man. Now, let's pause here for a moment. Let's take a little, take a little breath. Let's come up for some air here. Let's imagine for a moment You're you're living in first century Philippi. You're in this house church. You're hearing this read. And you live in a city that is full of overzealous 
loyalty and militarism and patriotism to Philippi. You hear the propaganda all throughout your work week. Caesar is Lord. That's, that's the cultural milieu you live in. You hear of the word gospel all the time, but it's not a religious word. It's actually a political word. It's used to describe how Caesar and his army has defeated the enemy, and that is gospel. That is good news. Praise God or praise Caesar for that. And this is the environment you live in, but you come, you're gathering with maybe 20, 30 people on a Sunday night. Think of like a large GC. And you're gathered together, you're reading from these scriptures, and every week you're singing and confessing and believing that Jesus is Lord. This is what you hold on to. Even though you're a minority, even though you have no cultural influence, even though you have no power, the core message of what you believe is, this, is very simple. Jesus himself is Lord. And that through his self-giving, self-emptying love, he has come to save people, a bunch of nobodies like you and me. But remember, though, if you're 2,000 years ago, it's easy to think now just how massive Christianity has exploded. But think about in their day. You don't know that Christianity has a chance of surviving. I mean, you're a fragile minority. You're a persecuted minority. You don't have any power or influence, but you gather every single week believing this, that one day, friends, one day, every knee will bow. One day, every tongue is going to confess. That even though it's so crazy and unpredictable and difficult out there, even though that my life is falling apart and it's full of uncertainty, Jesus is on the throne. Jesus rules and reigns. And there's coming a day when sin and death and the enemy will be fully and finally vanquished. And you gather week in and week out confessing and singing and believing this, not just as a theological idea, but because it's transforming your own life and the life of the culture around you. Friends, don't you see that this doctrine, this theology for the early church was not just intellectual, just stuff, but it shaped and formed their affections, their loyalty, and how they lived their everyday lives. And this is why, again, back to what I was saying at the very beginning, we need more theology in our lives to shape our affections, our loves, our motivations, that we would not just be content with surfacey platitudes or a little phrase here or there, but these things would so sink deeply into our being that this would be what animates and motivates and fuels your life. That a robust understanding of Jesus doesn't just shape the way the Philippian church lived 2,000 years ago, but shapes the way you live walking out these doors. And it shapes the way you interact with your spouse or your roommates or your coworkers, whatever it might be. And so how might, how might then we think about this? Let me, let me just end with kind of two brief points here to really put some flesh on this. Number one, this is what God is like. And we very clearly have seen this. This passage is demonstrating and showing us this is who God is in Christ and this is what he is like. N.T. Wright again sums it up well. He says, 
As you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is this. This is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. His progression through incarnation to death must be seen not as something which required him, as it were, to stop being God, but as the perfect self-expression of the true God. That it's in this passage and passages like it that we see what God or who God is. And so on one hand, we understand this is who God is like, or this is what God is like. But number two, this is how we are to live. Our understanding of who God is and what he is like is meant to shape and form how we are to live. Paul Miller in his book, The J-Curve, says this, Paul can't imagine believing the gospel without becoming like the gospel. Do you see how those two work together? That on one hand, yes, the cross is a real historical event that's happened in time and space and history, and it's meant to shape the way we live. People talk about having a cruciform or cross-shaped pattern of living. That's exactly what we're talking about here. And so let me kind of put a little bit of flesh on this for a moment. Scholar Michael, Michael Gorman has this kind of nifty paradigm to kind of explain what's happening in this passage. He looks at it like through this lens, because X, not Y, but Z. Now let me explain this for a moment here. Because X, because Jesus is fully God, because Jesus is in the form of God, not Y, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but Z, made himself nothing. So because Jesus is God, did not, not, not Z, not Y, but emptied himself, but Z, gave of himself. Because, because Y, or sorry, because X, not Y, but Z. Now, my point here is that this pattern is actually used all throughout the New Testament for how it's to shape and inform how we live as Christians. Just one brief example from the book of Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is wrestling with the Corinthian church about should the Christians eat the meat sacrificed to idols? And this same logic is being applied. Because X, because I'm free in Christ, like you're free to eat the meat, Paul would say to the Corinthians. But not why. I'm not going to make my brother stumble. I'm going to consider the interests of others, the, the, the needs of others ahead of my own. And so, but Z, I'm going to refrain. And so this pattern of because X, not Y, but Z is really the rhythm of what it means to look, look and to live a cross-shaped pattern. So the question, though, I have for all of us is simply this. Take out the, the, what's in parentheses there and fill in the blank for your life. Because X, because you are in Christ, because you are free from sin and selfishness in all those ways, because of that reality, you are free not to choose selfishness. You're free not to choose your own interests, but rather you're free to give up of yourself, to give self-giving love to those around you. And friends, don't you see that it's because you are in Christ, because Christ has set you free from sin and selfishness. You are now free to not choose your own way, your own preferences, the things that you want all the time, but you're free to give of yourself just as Christ has done for you. 
And so, friends, as we close, as we think about this, very simply, like what I just asked a moment ago, how would you fill in those blanks for your life? You're free in Christ. You're adopted. Everything's been given to you as a gift. And how is the truth of who God is and what Christ has done, how does that shape and form your relationships? And where, they get more specific, where is the Spirit inviting you to give up your preferences for the sake of others? Where is the Spirit of God calling you to not choose something for yourself, to take advantage for yourself, but rather to give freely for the sake of others. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us in that. We ask, God, by the power of your Spirit, you would continually be shaping and forming our desires and our affections, that you would be shaping and forming the way we think and understand who you are. And so, God, would you give us the grace and the power to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, that are shaped by you? And so, would you increase our joy? Would you increase our affections for you? Would you help us to see the beauty of a passage like this and how it clearly points to who you are? So, God, we ask and pray all these things in your name. Amen.